Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Ms. Omar. Thank you, Chairman. Um, thank you all for being here, and thank you for your uh, testimonies. Mr. Adams, in 1991, you pleaded guilty to two counts of withholding information from Congress regarding your involvement in the Iran Kortra affair, for which you were later pardoned by President George H.W. Bush. I fail to understand uh, why members of this committee or the American people should find any testimony that you give uh, today to be truthful. If I can respond to that. Uh, um, it wasn't a question. I on that was it not that was not a question that was the, I I reserve the right I'm to my time it is not it is not right that was Members not a question can attack on February 8th who is not permitted to reply that that was not a question thank you for your participation on February 8th 1982 you testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee about US policy in El Salvador in that hearing you dismissed as communist propaganda report about the massacre of El Mosote, in which more than 800 civilians, including children as young as two years old, were brutally murdered by US trained troops. During that massacre, some of those troops bragged about raping a 12-year-old girl before they killed them girls before they killed them. You later said that the US policy in El Salvador was a fabulous achievement. Yes or no, do you still think so? From the day that President Duarte was elected in a free election to this day, El Salvador has been a democracy. That's a fabulous achievement. Yes or no, do you think that massacre was a fabulous achievement that happened under our watch. That is a ridiculous question, and I yes will not or no? No. I I'm I will sorry, Mr. I will Chairman, take that as a yes. I am not going to respond to that kind of personal attack, which is not a question. Yes or no? Would you support an armed faction within Venezuela that engages in war crimes, crimes against humanity, or genocide? if you believe they were serving U.S. interests, as you did in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua? I am not going to respond to that question. I'm sorry. I don't think this entire line of questioning is meant to be real questions, and so I will not reply. Whether you, under your watch, a genocide will take place, and you will look the other way, because American interests were being upheld, is a fair question because the American people want to know that anytime we engage a country, that we think about <clears throat> what our actions could be and how we believe our values are being farthered. That is my question. Will you make sure that human rights are not violated and that we uphold international and human rights 
I suppose there is a question in there, and the answer is that the entire thrust of American policy in Venezuela <clears throat> is to support the Venezuelan people's effort to restore democracy to their country. That's our policy. I don't think anybody disputes that. The question I had for you is that the interest, does the interest of the United States include protecting human rights and include protecting people against genocide? That is always the position of the United States. Thank you. is Mike Figueroa, who is the host of The Humanist Report, which is this fantastic show uh, on YouTube and other places. Uh, Mike has a master's degree in political science and usually goes in depth on not only political things that are going on, but also foreign policy. So we had such a week this week in foreign policy with crazy stuff going on that I wanted to have Mike on the show to talk about some of the things that have happened. Welcome, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. I am very excited to be here. It's been a very busy week in politics. Yeah, <laughs> some crazy stuff. So let's start with Elon Omar because she really took one on the chin this week uh, because of what happened with APAC. I'm going to describe a little bit of that for the folks that might have missed it. I'm not sure how anybody would have missed this, but it's possible. So basically, she was responding to a tweet from uh, Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald. Couldn't get that out where he was talking about APEC uh, influencing politics here in the United States. Uh, APEC is a lobbyist group. Clearly they are. Um, their entire existence is, is to uh, lobby for foreign affairs for this, the state of Israel. So that's what they do. Anyway, so she made, um, she quote tweeted him and made a, a, a joke about it being all about the Benjamins, which is the rap lyrics from, I think, Snoop Dogg. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Uh-huh, yeah. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Uh. Me. You know, and this to me is like, I read that and I thought to myself, yeah, it's like a bot Congress and it's a lobbyist group. It certainly is. Anyway, then somebody chimed in like, well, who is that? And she said APAC. That was her one word response. Anyway, next thing you know, she's now being accused of being anti-Semitic. So, first of all, let's talk about the fact that this is not an anti-Semitic position, as far as I'm concerned, because the Jewish people are not the same as an Israeli foreign lobby. Let's not, in fact, conflating these things to, these two things together is really offensive in, in a lot of ways, because now you're saying that all Jewish people, no matter where they live, agree with anything the state of Israel does, but it also provides the state of Israel cover whereas they can do whatever they want and never get criticized for it. So it's sort of a twofold thing. And, uh, and in fact, we call this Hospera, literally translates into explaining. So what are your thoughts on the situation? Yeah, my thoughts are in line with yours. It's, yeah. it's really absurd to me that we're supposed to agree with this idea that IPAC is a synonym for Jew now, when that's completely not true. I mean, IPAC is an organization that does not represent the Jewish people. They represent the state of Israel and their geopolitical interests. They're not looking out for the civil rights, civil liberties of American Jewish people and Jewish individuals abroad. This is a lobbying organization that's all about foreign policy and interests 
And, you know, if you look at their membership page, the average Jewish American probably couldn't afford to become a member of IBAC because <laughs> the lowest starting option is $1,800 a year. That's a lot of money when you compare that to the NRA, which is like $30 a year. This is for elites. This is for elites, not just who are Jewish people, but this is for evangelicals, Republicans and Democrats. These are people who are becoming members of IPAC to get access to politicians because they brag about giving you access to politicians. My job was basically to convince students that participating in the war of ideas on campus is actually a distraction. You can hold up signs and have rallies on campus, but the Congress gets $3.1 billion a year for Israel. Everything APAC does is focused on enforcing Congress. Congress is where you have leverage, so you, you can't influence the President of the United States directly, but the Congress can. APAC is very interested in making sure that every representative and every senator toes the line on Israel. And uh, it is highly effective in that regard. That's why it's considered to be synonymous in many people's heads with the lobby. So to say that, you know, in pointing out the influence, the influence of a lobbying firm like IPAC is anti-Semitic, not only is it absurd, but I think it, it's basically borderline self-parody. It's insane. And the fact that so many people bought into this narrative, including a lot of Democrats, Democratic party yeah. leadership, it, just, it makes me so frustrated. Really frustrated. Let's talk about that for a second about the evangelicals, because you're correct on this. There's a sort of a perverse thing that I don't know that a lot of people realize, where a lot of right-wing evangelicals support APAC and they support the state of Israel, not because they care about the Jewish people. They do not. A lot of them are, in fact, white nationalists that would be happy killing Jews. Uh, but the reason they support it is because in their perverse minds, this brings the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then the Jews either have to convert to Christianity or they perish. Like this is literally how these folks think. And if you've had conversations, which I've actually had with some of them on Twitter, you all of a sudden begin to realize how, uh, what a tangled web this is and how dangerous it is in my opinion for, uh, for any Jewish entity to be sort of engaging these folks and and looking towards them for support instead of their own people. To me, this is like uh, you're making a strange bedfellow here and you're not really thinking about the long-term consequence of that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this may be the incorrect choice of words, but it's kind of like an unholy alliance between yeah. these people who typically shouldn't be, you know, aligning because they have just these fundamentally, you know, diametrically opposed fucking views on this yeah. issue. I mean, to believe that, you know, the state of Israel has to control Jerusalem specifically so that way that can work about the end times, they're not looking out for the Jewish people. They're looking out for their own geopolitical interests and their religious interests. So it's, it's really weird to me that, you know, people don't look at the evangelical support as something that's problematic because it is the thought that, you know, religiously they have to convert to Christianity or perish. Yeah. That's, that's really not a great ideology, you know? So to equate those types of people with Jewish people, that is, I think, insensitive. And that's what a lot of American Jewish progressives have said. So Katie Halper even pointed out that, like, yeah. to even say that IPAC is equivalent to all Jews is insensitive, and it's an anti-Semitic trope in and of itself. Yeah. Katie, you say that uh, Omar's comments are both not anti-Semitic, and you, you didn't have a problem, I imagine, with the first comments. 
No, I mean, and I have a problem apology with her fine. as an anti-Semite. She said something. This is how anti-Semitic it was, apparently. She said something that Thomas Friedman, major supporter of Israel, has said. Thomas Friedman said at the New York Times that an applause that Bibi Netanyahu received was paid for by the Israel lobby. An Israel lobby, any lobby is a lobby. A lobby lobbies uses money to influence politics and politicians. That's what APAC does. APAC wants you to know that. APAC knows that. Everyone who uh, donates to APAC knows that. This is literally stating a fact. There's nothing anti-Semitic in there. What is anti-Semitic, though, if you want to talk about anti-Semitic tropes and playing into those, is what Kevin McCarthy, who, along with Donald Trump, is going after um, Ilhan um, Omar, and what he said in a tweet that he deleted was that um, uh, that Steyer and Bloomberg and Soros were buying the election. Now, that is an anti-Semitic trope that he definitely played okay. into. He well, deleted the tweet, okay, but he never so, apologized. So billionaires, Trump, billionaires Trump, can't buy an election, well, then. Name, I get billionaires three, who are liberal, that's cool. Jews, but if you're a conservative, you're spending too much money. Wait, All right, Katie. Um, it is because it, it implies that the entire community is monolithic in their beliefs and that if you don't agree with that, you know, and there's also an internal term called a capo, which is sort of a stand in for self-hating. So, you know, that is something mm -hmm. else that you'll see some of these hard right Israelis say, well, you're a capo, you're a self-hating Jew. You don't support what I'm saying. And, you know, the problem is, I think, is that Americans aren't really aware a lot of the things that are going on internally in the state of Israel. There's a battle in Israel and that's been raging now for a good 20, 25 years between the right and the left. And the right has definitely been in power for a very long time now. And Likud, uh, which is the party that Netanyahu is a part of, isn't the most extreme party there. There's another party called Home Party. Home is uh, even more to the right. They're, they're fascists, they're nationalists. Like They appear like a sectarian football mob. <laughs> Palestinian shopkeepers hurriedly shut their shops as the settlers move in. Confrontation is brewing. As the mood turns ugly, suddenly a Palestinian journalist is set upon. Palestinians feel more and more powerless as the settlers, with burgeoning state support, move into the Israeli mainstream. They've always believed God was on their side. Now they had their strongest political backing yet, in the form of the pro-settler Jewish Home Party, a key part of the new Israeli coalition government. With the recent election of the extreme right-wing government, with hardcore settler supporters at its core, these young settlers have been encouraged, even emboldened, and their voices are only going to grow louder. Uh, Hyper-nationalists. It, it's, you know, really dangerous stuff. But this is, you know, you, we can get into all the reasons that, that the state ended up in this uh, way, and that would be literally a three-hour conversation, if not more. But, but you're right about something. It's the geopolitical faction married to this evangelical right-wing faction that's really kind of disturbing because the United States only cares about Israel in the sense that it's adjacent to the Arab world. They're friendly towards us. They're not Muslim. And this is, for them, a strategic alliance that they're not willing to walk away from. And that that's, uh, crosses party lines. You know, you had Pelosi 
which really upset mm-hmm. people on board. And she was calling for uh, calling Omar an anti-Semite. And so anyway, so the, the, a lot of drama um, came out, but you're right. A lot of the uh, prominent leftist Jewish folks in the United States came out in defense of Omar, which I, which was great. They were as angry about this conflation of, um, of the foreign lobby group with Judaism because they're not the same thing. A lot of, uh, you know, here's the thing, folks. A lot of Jewish people aren't Zionists. That's, that's the bottom line. So right. I'm glad, I'm sort of, but you know, Mike, I'm sort of glad this happened because this is a conversation we've been needing, we've needed to have for a long time in this country. And everybody's afraid to talk about it because the Hasbara that has come has been so effective. I mean, the minute you tell anybody if they're not a Zionist, they're anti-Semitic, it shuts down the entire conversation. And I think the other thing that's affecting change is the BDS movement. And a lot of folks uh, don't realize, I think, that a lot of uh, uh, a lot of the support for BDS came internally from leftist Israelis. Like my friend Ronnie Barkin is the founder of Boycott From Within, which is, um, which is one of the original BDS organizations. And um, he's a leftist Jewish guy. And he's been fighting this fight for a long time. And he gets hammered all day long on Twitter. It's crazy. I don't know how he does it. Anyway, let's talk about BDS for it's a second. I know it's crazy, but he's a, yeah. he's a strong fighter. In fact, he's facing uh, criminal charges in Berlin uh, this week or next week, March 3rd. I think he goes on trial because um, himself, another Israeli Jew and a uh, escapee from Gaza went to protest at Humboldt University. And uh, uh, one of the members of the Knesset, I can't remember who it was, but they ended up getting arrested. And now they're going to be put on trial in a couple of weeks. It's like, it's some crazy stuff. But we all... Yeah, that's really fight. insane. Yeah, it's insane. So BDS. Let's yeah, and you, you bring up a really good point that I yeah. didn't think about how this really is sparking an important conversation. I hadn't thought about, about it that way because when you're kind of in the trenches, you just kind of feel demoralized. Like, wow, this is an insane conversation we're all having. But I think that... You're right. That actually does kind of make it seem that things might be okay because we're finally having this really tough conversation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, at least we're not afraid to have it anymore. So that, to me, that change is a good change because for a long time, like there was no movement in this area. It was just what it was. And, Mm -hmm. which is tough, you know, and then anybody that dared speak up or say anything like a, Miko Pilat. Like Always this. nice to see you in, in you. studio, Miko. Uh, Haaretz did just confirm a few moments ago that an Israeli soldier was killed today while firing on protesters uh, near the uh, border fence. Why would Israel respond to re- return fire from Palestinians, which with such extreme force, considering over 140 Palestinians have died during these protests, including children, women, medical workers, and journalists? Well, I don't think there's any doubt that Israel's intention is to kill as many Palestinians as possible whenever it can. And so they do it in Gaza by, uh, through denying them water, denying them medical care, bombing them on a regular basis, periodically, and now it's time to bomb them again. This is, this is, a, this is a, a violation of international law. This is criminal. It's genocidal. And one has to wonder how many more Palestinians are going to have to die in Gaza before the international community stop, uh, steps in. Ali Abunima, editor of the Electronic Intifada, said on Twitter that this latest news uh, shows that it 
Palestinians have military capacities they refrain from using despite constant terror and aggression by Israel. Do you agree that if indeed uh, Palestinians were able to kill an Israeli soldier on the border that this is a ca the case? Well, Palestinians have chosen a, a path, a, pe a peaceful path of resistance, and they've been very consistent with that. Um, and so I, I think he's probably right. Um, the fact that Israeli soldiers from time to time are killed is, is not a surprise. I mean, there, this is, there is there's military action taking place there. Um, but I think Israel has, 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 is making the case for the campaign supporting boycott, divestment, and sanctions all, all by itself through the killing in Gaza, the genocidal attacks in Gaza, through the passing of the recent law, which, which really puts a stamp of, of approval on, on the apartheid regime, and uh, through destruction of towns and villages throughout Palestine. There's, there's been voices out there discussing the situation, but they have been, you know, really tarred and feathered for the points that they've been trying to, trying to make, and it's, which just makes it scarier for the next guy to say anything, you know? Oh, absolutely. So the next thing that this was connected to um, in a roundabout way was Roe had his war power resolution uh, was passed this week in the House, which is which we all applauded, right? This was good. This is um, to halt U.S. involvement in Yemen. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, which is a good thing, right, Mike? But here's the thing. The Democrats have, what, a 38, 38 seat advantage or something like this? 38 seat advantage. I believe so, yeah. They, they have a, a pretty big edge. Yeah, so right now would be the time for them to actually try to fight the good fight, right? But in typical Democratic fashion, they chose not to. Instead, they passed a very much watered-down version of his bill um, that the GOP wanted. And so there's a, now in an amendment that's been, uh, that's been attached that allows Trump to continue the U.S. intelligence support of the Saudi-led coalition in uh, Yemen. And this is the coalition that's committing genocide. But wait, yeah. the added bonus is uh, APAC added anti-BDS language as well as an amendment. So this is a twofold thing that would basically, so now, you know, the conversation is uh, if you support BDS, you can't take a government contract, which I think this is a violation of the First Amendment rights of the American people myself. What are your thoughts? Oh, clearly, clearly <laughs> it's a violation because, I mean, this is definition. Like there's a lot of people who kind of, became free speech warriors on not just, you know, the center, but the right. Yeah. And this is kind of the issue that you should care about if you are a free speech warrior. But um, I don't see much talk about it. <laughs> yeah, no. Why do you think that is? I think that, you know, the thing with conservatism is that a feature of it is hypocrisy. It's not just, you know, an outcome that's produced. It's a feature. And that should be displayed to people more so than ever this week. Because, I mean, think about this. Donald Trump was condemning Ilhan Omar, saying that she should resign. When in 2017, he couldn't even condemn neo-Nazis. The easiest thing that you could possibly do, right, he refused right. to condemn them. He said there are very fine people on both sides. Yes. Yeah, but... President, are you putting what you're calling the alt-left and white supremacists on the same moral plane? I'm not putting anybody on a moral plane. What I'm saying is this. You had a group on one side and you had a group on the other, and they came at each other with clubs, and it was vicious, and it was horrible, and it was a horrible thing to watch. But there is another side. There was a group on this side, you can call them the left, or you've just called them the left, that came violently attacking the other group. So you can say what you want, but that's the way it is. Okay. 
so you said there was hatred, there was violence on both sides. Are, are well, I do think there's blame. Sense? Yes, I think there's blame on both sides. You look at you look at both sides. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. And, only and, the Nazis. And, and if you reported it accurately, you would say. And you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me, I saw the same pictures as you did. You had people in that group that were there to protest the taking down of, to them, a very, very important statue and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. Just last year, he named three Jewish billionaires. Out of all the billionaires, he chose three Jewish ones right. and said, well, you know, we shouldn't let them buy the election. So all the people who are crying about Ilhan and Omar, they had nothing to say about Donald Trump. They had nothing to say about Kevin McCarthy supposedly, you know, talking about buying elections when he just so happened to name the three Jewish Americans. So, I mean, they just, they love to point it out when it's on the left, but not on the right. So these free speech warriors, they can't really talk about BDS because, you know, they have to, they have to not just prop up right wing orthodoxy that, People in D.C. you know love to espouse, but they also have to, you know, it, it's, well, it's they're hustlers basically, like the people like Dave Rubin and whatnot. So it's frustrating, but I think that they're pretty transparent, which is a good thing. Yeah, no, and you're right. So Kevin McCarthy, that's true. He he made um, some crazy tweets about Soros buying the election. Uh, I think he mentioned Bloomberg and Steyer. These are all uh, wealthy Jewish guys, which. Which mm -hmm. is genuinely an anti-Semitic trope. Now you're saying that the wealthy Jewish guys are buying the election. So how is it? You're right. Yeah, Kevin McCarthy has right. a leg to stand on. Yet he was one of the first that came out of the the uh, to the gate to to condemn Omar for anti-Semitism was entirely hypocritical. And I want to understand why Pelosi would yeah. side with with somebody like Kevin McCarthy. Like really? Yeah, it, it doesn't. It honestly, oh, I mean, it doesn't make sense because. What they were trying to do was basically get the Democratic Party to turn on their own and eat their own and attack Ilhan Omar, and they they did that. Yeah. You know, so it's what they tried to do was play Democrats and get them to turn on each other, and it worked out perfectly to their advantage. But the Democrats should have been more savvy and known that you know this is what the, the Republican Party does. So don't fall for it. But they fall for it every single time. But this isn't going to teach them as well. No, and you're right. And I guess what's frustrating for me, which is this is also very convoluted of the Democrats. They're supposed to be the left wing party, yet they're that they're siding with right wingers in Israel. These are they're siding with folks that are doing things in Israel that they would never accept in the United States. It's it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't think the conversation is about whether, you know, whether Israel should be blown off the map, which is what they always say. It's whether or not you want to side with the right wingers that are doing really bad things you know i mean the palestinian people have a, a mm -hmm. exist just as much and this is a colonial state it's just that simple and at some point there needs to be a reckoning of what happened the nakba is a real thing it happened you can't continue to ignore this. and that's a great point that you make because basically what they do is they try to reframe the terms of the discussion by creating this straw man yeah. and they try to make it about oh well this is you just not wanting israel to exist that's not even a conversation we're having we're talking about a human rights issue right now exactly. we're talking about violations 
under international law. This isn't about Israel and anti-Semitism. Their rights exist and anti-Semitism. This is about a real human rights issue that I believe we're all going to look back and say, wow, how could we allow this to go on? You know, we're on the right side of history here, but they, they don't know how to have a serious conversation about it because the Democratic Party, let's face it, they are bankrolled by IPAC. Both parties take money from the pro-Israel lobby. They yeah. can't really have a genuine conversation. And if they're bought off, then by any lobby, you know, you have to be disingenuous, which is why the Republican Party, they talk about, oh, well, the left wants the ban done. Who's talking about that? Nobody's <laughs> talking about that. But this is, you know, you have to be absurd to make your opponents look like they're bad faith actors when the opposite is true. Right. So, yes, exactly. So the, the same reasons that they seem to tie themselves to the Saudi regime are the same reason they tie themselves to Netanyahu and Likud. It's because of the geopolitical factors. And Saudi is, the Saudi government is engaged in a lot of human rights violations as well, atrocious things. Um, so I guess I guess I'm really disappointed in the left and I shouldn't say the left. I'm really disappointed in the democratic establishment in this country because they really are taking up the mantle for right wingers and they're trying to repackage it and sell it to the American population as something other than what it actually is. I think people are waking up to the reality and they're seeing it for what it is now, thank God. But for a long time, they've yeah. gotten away with this stuff. It's frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. I think it really is showing their true colors as well. Yeah. The Democratic Party today is what you know, the moderate Republican Party was from yeah. you know a couple of decades ago. That Overton window has just shifted so far to the right that Democrats are basically right wing. You know, the, the the pretty standard medium Democrat is right wing, and the Republican Party they're just they're cartoonishly fascist that are <laughs> off the spectrum. Seriously, cartoonishly fascist. <laughs> Is true. The Overton window is way to the right. I, I think another example of this would be what's going on in Venezuela, obviously. So, you know, here's... Mm -hmm. uh, okay, this is me being frustrated. The one thing that Trump has been okay on was his non-interventionist stance thus far in foreign policy. Well, that's entirely gone out the window. It started with appointing Bolton. Now we have Pompeo. Mm -hmm. Now we have war criminal Elliot Abrams. So these are like horrible neocons have done horrible things in the world and so now mm -hmm. it sounds like they're gearing up to promote uh, a forced re regime change in venezuela and i'm just beside myself because you know once again this, this has to do with oil they're saying it's a humanitarian crisis well you know it's a not a humanitarian crisis <laughs> but b you know, you're the one that have been putting sanctions on the country for three years now and you thought the poor people weren't going to be affected by that which is just hogwash so it's like what is it? Rinse, wash, repeat. Do the sanctions. The poor people starve, and then go. Oops, we got to intervene. Humanitarian crisis. When it's not about that, what's mm -hmm. it's making the world safe for corporations and for exactly. Crisis. So, shit, man. <laughs> yeah, no, you're so right. Because Donald Trump, he, we all know that he's just this bumbling idiot with a low IQ, but he yeah. does have the right things. Sometimes, when it comes to foreign policy, I mean, he's said horrible right. things about killing the families of ISIS and jacking their oil. But I mean, for the most part, he does have the tendency, oftentimes, to be anti-interventionist. Anti yeah. The problem is he surrounds himself with these neocons, yeah. these warmongers, and he's such a pushover that 
it doesn't take much for them to convince him and get him to go along with whatever they want. So it's frustrating. I mean, if we if we truly cared about humanitarian issues, we wouldn't be meddling in other countries, you know, as, as much as we like to complain about meddling. What did, you know, the United States do? Because we've been trying to get into Venezuela for a while now. This yeah. goes back to, you know, Chavez and George right. W. Bush. Chavez was someone who basically told the United States to go ask themselves. You know, you're not getting natural resources. You know, you're not going to take advantage of us and love them or hate them. I think that, you know, the Venezuelan government, they need to diversify their economy, obviously just basing it off of oil. That's going to set yourself up for problems. But, I mean, what the United States is doing is taking advantage on that one weakness. I believe it was in, what, 2015, when they, as well as Saudi Arabia and Israel, kind of formed this deal to where they would artificially flood the market with cheap oil. And that obviously undercut Venezuela. It created instability. And whenever you have instability, you have political instability that leads to chaos and mass protests, which then led to Obama putting sanctions on them and it's just this is all you know a large part due to us and now we're trying to solve a problem that we helped create and it's it's absurd it's just we've we've seen this story play out before is the biggest issue you know it's like it's not like this is new Mm -hmm. we're not naive anymore we know exactly what's happening john bolton literally just said on fox news a couple of weeks ago this is about the oil so they're not even hiding their agenda so why is this even debatable Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and, and Democrats are going along with it. Even, you know, the ones who are running for president who are trying to convince you that they are like Bernie Sanders, who have Kirsten Gillibrand saying that, you know, she, we should acknowledge Juan Gaido, which is effectively Sukhumic, who, yeah. you know, um, yeah. so it's just it's frustrating that the open window is not only so far to the right, but one thing I've noticed, you know, for all this talk about Democrats shifting less supposedly on economic issues, is that they've been shifting really steadily to the right, to where there's this DC neoconservative consensus that has emerged in yeah. both parties. And you yeah. see it now where they're voting for Donald Trump's Florida's military budget. You see it in, you know, them trying to undermine Donald Trump's efforts with peace in North Korea. And let's be clear, Donald Trump is a moron who's in over his head. But to try to, you know, go above his head and block him from stopping the United States and South Korea from performing military exercises near North Korea, mm-hmm. I mean, that's obviously an ex- escalation. So why would you stop him from doing the one thing he's done? Maybe that is right. It's just there's this neoconservative consensus, and there's really nobody that is really doing a lot to shift over to the window back to the left. You have people like AOC and Bernie who are doing great on economic issues, but when it comes to foreign policy, you know, mm-hmm. there's really no one person who yeah. is being the Bernie but a foreign policy, which is frustrating. Yeah, I have to co-sign, Mike. I agree with that. And, you know, and it should be mentioned that Abrams uh, wanted to, to back a coup that was staged in Venezuela in 2002. So this is something that's been on his list a long time. Uh, see, this is, oh, yeah. is the case with the neoconservatives. They wanted to invade Iraq for forever. They, they, they have their agenda that they set up, you know, 30 years ago, and it's preemptive, and it's about making, you know, it's about American empire, really, at the end of the day. But they just wait for an mm-hmm. opportune moment in which they can manufacture consent for the war that they want in the first place. It's not like that they didn't want this war. They've been wanting it a long time. They've just been waiting for the opportune moment. So this idea that they're saying to you, oh, look, we have to go to war now. Look what happened. It's just bogus. I mean, shit, they still haven't found the weapons yeah. of mass destruction in Iraq. I mean, come on, Abrams, go find that and get back to me. <laughs> exactly. Right. And, you know, if, if the Iraq war wasn't such a gigantic blunder, I think we would have already tried to invade Iran and Venezuela 
but they know they have to be a little bit more cautious because public opinion is very hesitant about more war. Even if we see, you know, D.C. and anyone in that elitist bubble pretty much saber-rattling against Russia and, you know, talking really hawkish, the average American doesn't want any more regime change wars. Like, we, we want to start focusing on our own people. We're never, like, this idea that there is a war for humanitarian reasons I think nobody's buying it anymore, which is great, because it's completely the dumbest idea. Like, there's no war for humanitarian reasons. And even if we could theoretically wage a humanitarian war, for example, like I'm very concerned with the situation in Myanmar, with the Rohingya and the genocide that's being caused. But in the event the United States were to intervene for a supposed humanitarian war, I have no question in my mind we'd make it worse, because we would never care about human rights. We care about interest and international hegemony and geopolitical dominance. We don't care about those things. So that's why this idea that there's humanitarian wars, I think people are waking up to it because our agenda is so painfully clear. Yeah. They just haven't hit it well. And it's kind of it undermined their efforts to wage even more wars. Yeah, no, absolutely, 200%. Uh, and I agree with you that Trump is, you know, it's funny that you're saying that he's a pushover. He is a pushover, He, you know, so, which makes him a little bit, um, you know, I have to go back to the Bush years because I always thought Bush was a pushover as well. And I thought it was the Cheney's mm -hmm. and the rest of the neocon administration that were really controlling uh, the agenda. I mean, do you remember, um, I don't know how many people with this, you know, everybody's been trying to rehabilitate George Bush lately, which drives me up the wall. But do you remember when he said, oh, makes me nauseous. yeah, he was going to invade the Hague if they ever put any American on trial for war crimes. And <laughs> it's like, Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. True. This is a true story. I, and I yeah, I don't remember him saying that because I was kind of young during the Bush right, years. Right, but right. Exactly. I'm all I, as I go back to it, you know, it's worse than I remember. <laughs> yeah, no, it's bad. And in fact, people that try to tell me that Trump is worse than Bush, I just kind of shake my head. I'm like, you just don't remember the Bush yeah. years. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Bush, yeah. Trump is bad. Don't get me wrong, but no, Bush was far more damaging because he literally started this insane war based on false intelligence and he knew this intelligence intelligence was false he just simply didn't care and the american mm -hmm. lives lost were tremendous the iraqi lives lost were tremendous like there's there's no coming back from this as far as i'm concerned every single one of those motherfuckers should be put to the hate which is i'm sure why he said this he knows this is true and you know elliot mm -hmm. Abrams, to go back to him i mean he's been around a long time he was part of the reagan uh, era and during the Reagan era, we saw a lot of re regime change in Central America. And generally, it was always to overthrow leftist elected, democratically elect elected leftist governments and install right wing dictators. And Elliot, uh, you know, he oversaw some serious genocides in uh, Guatemala. So this, the, when people say that Elliot Abrams is a war criminal, they're not sort of fudging it in the way that they would with like a Pompeo. I think Pompeo is a war criminal, but but Elliot Abrams has like next level to that. You know what I'm saying? This is a guy that even means that nobody will ever forget that genocide was committed. As we and wrap up, investigative journalist Alan Nairn, um, the compensation end of the trial, what you feel needs to be done now, you have covered this uh, throughout these decades. Well, uh, every, all of the crimes that Rigoberto Menchu just described were crimes not just of General Rios Montt, but also of the U.S. government. The U.S. Uh, prosecutors in, in Washington should immediately convene a grand jury 
with two uh, missions. First, uh, coming to the aid of the Guatemalan Attorney General, who has just been ordered by the court to investigate all others involved in Rios Montt's crimes, by releasing uh, all classified uh, U.S. documents about what happened during the slaughter, which U.S. personnel were involved, uh, providing to the Guatemalan Attorney General a list of all Guatemalan Army uh, officials and Security Force officials who were on the payroll of the American uh, CIA, and then proceeding to issue indictments uh, against uh, U.S. officials who acted in the role of accessory or accomplice to the crimes for which Rios Montt has already been convicted. And those people, you believe, would include? Uh, the, the top officials of the Reagan administration who made the policy—President Reagan is deceased, but his top aides, including Elliot Abrams and many others, are, are still alive. Uh, the U.S. CIA personnel on the ground who worked within the HEDOS, the military intelligence unit that coordinated the assassinations and disappearances. Uh, the U.S. military uh, attachés who worked uh, with the Guatemalan generals to develop the sweep and massacre strategy in the mountains. There would be hundreds of U.S. officials who were complicit in this. And should be subpoenaed, uh, called before a grand jury, uh, and subjected to indictment. And the U.S. should be ready to extradite them to Guatemala to face punishment if the Guatemalan uh, authorities are able to proceed uh, with this. And General Pérez Molina is one who should be included. And Pérez Molina himself was the among, president. Yes, is among those who was on the CIA payroll. Yeah is just so fucked up that I just uh, I have to imagine that that Bolton had a big say in that and that you're right Trump is being a puppet at this point to to Pompeo and Bolton I I don't know it's just <laughs> no no you you know what the way that you say that you kind of feel like um Dick Cheney was controlling Bush which I actually totally agree with yeah. I kind of feel like Bolton is controlling Donald Trump and I don't have evidence for that right this right. is kind of just speculation but Bolton is a very influential figure. You know, there's a reason why he stayed in power for so long throughout multiple administrations. And I kind of feel like yeah. when it comes to foreign policy, since he kind of became Donald Trump's national security advisor, you've seen this really hawkish turn for Donald Trump. Now, there were, of course, moments that contradicted that, like the North Korea situation, which I'm sure got under his skin. But I think that what the real goal, ultimately, for Iran, for um, Bolton is, is Iran. You know, so if he can make that as his priority and move the goalposts, or not the goalposts, but move the needle more towards that with Donald Trump, then he's going to do it. If he can get, you know, Trump closer to Venezuela, then sure, he'll let Donald Trump think that he's winning when it comes to North Korea. But I think John Bolton knows what he's doing. I think that Donald Trump is kind of just this useful idiot for the military-industrial complex. He doesn't even realize it. You know, so John Bolton is really nefarious. And when you say that, you know, there's different types of war criminals like Mike Pompeo and whatnot, totally agree. I kind of feel like there's this spectrum where there are people, you know, who are just, they're war criminal, war criminals, right? John Bolton, uh, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, they should all be in the head, um, Elliot Abrams. And there's people who should be tried, definitely Mike Pompeo. But, I mean, unquestionably, there's all these war criminals. But the thing is that Donald Trump, I don't, like, I don't feel like he has a moral compass. Like, he's amoral. So he's not thinking about these horrible things. He's That's just right. thinking, oh, well, this is someone who, you know, can win. You know, in right. whatever toddler term he has in his mind. Winning! <laughs> I think you're yep. right. Yep, like, it's, just, it's as simple as that. He's just, he's very, like, narrow-minded. 
like a, a child. So I, I don't really think he thought, oh, well, this person might not necessarily be the best political choice because he spent all of his political capital during the Bush year. He's not thinking about, like, it's Donald right. Trump. He's just thinking, oh, this guy's strong, you know, just really stupid things like that. Right. So, you know, which leads me to wonder, so you think the um, ultimate end game, end game for Bolton is Iran. I think that's an interesting thought. And it sort of leads me to wonder mm-hmm. if Pompeo... Okay, so I just have to have a moment to laugh because uh, the situation two weeks ago where Pompeo was saying Hezbollah was in Venezuela. I'm trying to say this without laughing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I cannot. (laughs) I can't. Is he serious? Breaking tonight, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo telling me exclusively that Nicolas Maduro must go and confirming to me that there are Hezbollah cells active inside Venezuela. Watch. Do you have concerns that Venezuela runs the risk of turning into a no man's land uh, where you you have these bad actors, including um, some with links to Hezbollah, that could be more of a threat because they're in our hemisphere? Yeah, Trish, I'm glad you brought that up. People don't recognize that Hezbollah has active cells. The Iranians are impacting the people of Venezuela and throughout South America. Uh, we have an obligation to take down that risk for America. Yeah, what exactly, how does it serve Hezbollah to be in Venezuela exactly? Like, it's, it's so insane. Like, it's mind-numbingly stupid. And um, Kyle Kalinske of Secular Talk had a really fantastic segment where he talks about how the propaganda on Venezuela is so bad that they're not even really trying. Like, they don't even care. It's just a a fast effort to get you to think we should invade, and the rubes who watch Fox News aren't going to question it. They're like, oh, what's Hezbollah? That sounds scary. Sure, I believe it. It's like, why would there be a Hezbollah cell in Venezuela? Well, you have to think know, just from a self-rational actor. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the craziest. Like, what the hell? <laughs> right? It's, so, it's like, so stupid. <laughs> it's so yeah, stupid. no, it, it's like there was this um, I don't know if you recall the remake of the New Dawn movie, and I think it was like 2012 or 2013, where North Korea supposedly invaded the United States. It's like, the whole time I'm thinking, this is the dumbest movie ever, because how the hell can North Korea invade the United States? It's like an ant, you know, trying to kill a human being. Like, that's not, that's not possible. So it's like, it's that level of stupidity where it's like fiction. Right. Because it is fiction, to be clear. Right. <laughs> craziness so yeah so maybe they're trying to in their sad little minds make a connection here i don't know i but that also leads me to talk about the pm of israel his uh, netanyahu's twitter account where he used the israeli word for war in his tweet war with iran so now i mean this could be you know i talked to ronnie about this ronnie said well he uses war for everything i'm like well true he likes war war on drugs war on this war on war on whoever he doesn't like but at the same time, it's still very um, worrisome, troublesome in the sense that I don't know that it is entirely uncalculated because he deleted the tweet and rephrased it. And uh, right, saw, right. So and you saw some of the NATSAC. That was my thought too. Mm-hmm. Okay. It didn't seem like me. Is this really a mistake or is this a statement? You know. Right. So you know, are we? Are they? Are they chumming up? Um, you know, man, again, manufactured consent for war. Is this the whole end game for the neocons in the United States and for Likud? Is that what's going on here? Because you know they've been wanting to invade Iran for forever. Mm-hmm. What is the end yeah, game, though, for that? What are they going to 
going to get from invading Iran besides spending billions of dollars on this, in your opinion? Um, in my view, just kind of another situation where they occupy Iran for decades in the military industrial complex. You know, they make more and more money. They get, you know, some type of profit installed. Um, it would, you know, benefit Saudi Arabia if Iran's influence was diminished in the region, of course. You know, it would help Israel. Uh, you know, it's a lot of difficult to tell yeah. um, what their personal goals are, but. You know, in the end, I do feel like this has kind of been something that they've been wanting to get us into for a while. And, and I kind of felt like to them, you know, Iran was always the main goal, but they had to start with Iraq. And you kind of have to work your way up to invading Iran because that would be a really big, like they're, they're a state. You know, this yeah. isn't like, you know, people have this vision of Iran that, you know, it's this desert. And oh, no, this is like this, this is a modern country, maybe That's a right. theocracy, but, you know, this, this would be a devastating, bloody war. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, um, so I don't – there's a lot of things that would help them, but, um, you know, the, the American people, the Iranian people would suffer tremendously from something like this. So it's – you know, I kind of feel like that's their ultimate goal, and I don't know if there's, like, any end goal for the military-industrial complex. Right. I just think it is, you know, to ramp it up as much as possible, make more money. Yeah, um, I think that Tulsi Gabbard kind of has made a really good point in an ad she released. Mm. Because she called out neoconservatism and liberalism simultaneously. Because I haven't really thought of it that way, but it's so simple. You know, you, you see this you know, capitalistic drive for war mm -hmm. that is fused with this neoconservative ideology mm -hmm. to, you know, pursue interests and steal political strength and dominance. Yeah. And, yeah, it, it's a, it's a money-making machine. It, it serves our interests. So it, there's, there's so much that's great about it. And if you're in the world and, you know, and you don't care about lives, then... Why not? Right. It reminds me of uh, Larry Kudlow, who's the CNBC guy. You know, years ago he made, he took a lot of flack for it, but he made a comment that bombing other countries increased Americans' 401ks. And it's just, it's so perverse. <laughs> but, but it's is, disgusting. It is disgusting, but this is where these folks' minds are. I swear they don't give a shit about anything but making money. It's just frightful. So that's, you know, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. It might be war just for the sake of war because because the permanent war economy is a uh, huge industry. And it's probably the largest mm -hmm. obvious that our Congress uh, takes money from. It's, you know, they, they're bought by the military. Absolutely. So that's a good point. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about neoconservative uh, viewpoints for a second because anybody that's taking in international relations knows that this is this is a political school of thought it's um, it's rooted in hayek sort of principles so it's it's uh, foreign policy dominance it's preemptive war american empire privatization uh, where the free market economy is the moral arbiter of everything i mean we can go down the list of things and you know this is a shared space that the neoliberals uh, also possess. So I sort of started calling them mm -hmm. neo-is because I think they're the same more or less group of people. But uh, yeah, yeah. So this past week, I wanted to bring up we, you know, my listeners hear me talk about Cap and Nira Tandon quite a bit because I really don't like her. <laughs> and, and, uh, she has me blocked on Twitter. <laughs> she got me too. She's got me blocked too. That's so funny. We'll have to, we'll have to compare notes later. 
Uh, but yeah, <laughs> Center for American Progress is the farthest thing from progress. And they, you know, they have a corporate um, tiered rewards program, even for their corporate donors. Like we can get into all the disgusting things that go on. But there's a person that works there. Her name is Kelly Maxman, and she's the vice president of national security and international policy. This, so this is somebody that studied, studied international relations. She's really clear on what uh, all of the political schools of thought are, right? She's an ex-Bush staff. She's an ex-Obama <clears throat> staff. She worked at the Pentagon. She's got the resume, right? So she had the audacity to claim this past week that the term neocon is anti-Semitic. <laughs> it's, that's, you know, it's equivalent ridiculous. to me. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's absurd. These people, we're seeing the rise of the fake woke person. <laughs> It, they're everywhere. <laughs> it's, it's like, but my concern is when I read this, my first instinct was like, are you on drugs? Because that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard anybody say. But then my second thought was like, no, this is a really well-educated person. There's a reason for this. And is the reason that they're trying to, to um, Teflon coat anyone from uh, criticizing neoconservative principles? I mean, Bush, Cheney, I could go down the list. None of these folks are Jewish. It's a fucking ridiculous claim. Oh, these are the same people that would claim that I'm sexist because I'm married to a man and I'm a dude myself. <laughs> like, it's just, it's so absurd. It is it is beyond irrational. And they think that they're able to get you that way. But they're, they're, the, the problem is that when you weaponize identity politics in this way, yeah. if you don't stay within the realm of reasonability, then you undercut that entire argument. You just make yourself look like a joke and you don't accomplish what your goal is, which is to shut down debate. So right. to say that neoconservatism is anti-Semitic, it's, it's not only ignorant, yeah. but it's just, it's downright stupid. There's no other way to describe it. And for a cat person, I mean, come on. Come on, exactly. And you know, the other thing that sort of... Especially for an IR person. Yeah, right? An IR person. And when I saw that she had studied international, I was like, oh, hell no. Come on. You know better than this. You that's know, just, that's offensive to political science people, okay? Because I'm a political is. science person, that offends me. It should have been I think that's I mean, homophobic. There's even, even a neoconservative manifesto, for fuck's sake. This is not, this is a self-identified term that they used, even. And, like, it's ridiculous. And I think the other part that pissed me off was this sort of thing distracts from the very real anti-Semitism that is out there. Like, when you make these ridiculous false claims like this, you're distracting from mm -hmm. us dealing with the true anti-Semitism that really does exist in this country. You know, it's like, come on, man. I, I gotta fight neo -Nazis. Oh, that is such a good point. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's such a great point, because anti-Semitism as a whole is on the rise. I think everyone can see that. So this is a yeah. real thing that we have to combat. But there are these people who are bad faith actors. They're yeah. trying to exploit it yeah. to shut down debates, but they're actually, they're, they're, they're helping the cause that is, you know, anti-Semitic in and of itself by trying to prop up any and all things that they think is unacceptable to anti-Semitic. It's, it's just disgusting. Yeah. It's disgusting. It's very infuriating. But yet here we are. And I can't imagine that uh, yeah. it was a non-calculated thing. You know, I just can't, especially knowing that it's coming from CAP. CAP. So, you know, and I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. Think tanks are not these independent academic entities that, that think tanks want you want you to believe that they are. They are another form of lobbying. They, lobbying. They, they were birthed from lobbyist laws. This was another way that corporations, et cetera, interest groups, uh, industry could get around the lobbying laws and pretend that they were something other than what they're not. And, you know, and they regularly have pieces planted in the New York times. Like if you go through like Molly McHugh, like some of these who was at American enterprise Institute, 
they they pretend that they're writing pieces like as as journalists but they work for think tanks and they write these pieces on behalf of their clients and their clients aren't always corporations they also have um, foreign governments as clients it's just a freaking hot mess and i just but when i saw her say that i was like oh hell no <laughs> it's such a stupid thing to say like i really hope that like I don't, I don't advocate for anyone being harassed, but I hope she got ratioed yeah. for that tweet. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, it was just a really irresponsible and stupid thing to say. Um, so Holy! I wanted to talk a little bit about postmodernism with you because I have an MA in philosophy, you have an MA in political science. Both of these um, studies have had their versions of postmodernism writing. I'm not a fan of postmodernism. Mm -hmm. I think it's shit. And the reason I think it's crap yeah, is, it's garbage. It's garbage. And the reason, the main reason, other than the fact you can't really get through anything they write because they use three paragraphs to say what they should have said in one sentence. And you're like, what the hell did I just read? Like you have to read it again. And then they think yeah. themselves smarter or something. I don't know. But the the main beef I have with mm -hmm. postmodernism theory is that it's so it makes everything so subjective that there's just no moral grounds left anymore. So if you if you make the claim that everything in the world is subjective or is morally relevant to a subject as opposed to being objective, you get into this really dangerous area where you let things in the back door. Uh, I think an obvious example of that is well, okay, if if everything's morally objective to a culture and it's it's relevant to them and we can't judge them for it, that gives the Nazis cover to do what they did. I mean, this is just this yeah. Is, you know, at least from a, in philosophy, we would say that. So, um, yeah, I, you know what? I to see the rise of postmodernism just in terms of popularity is baffling to me because I kind of approached. Um, I took a, a, a political philosophy course, and for the last three weeks, we looked at postmodernism, read a ton of postmodernist, you know, um, work, mm -hmm. and to me, I never got the sense that it was like this popular thing that would ever, you know, emerge. I just thought that this was a methodological approach to social science. Like, how can we observe objective truths, yeah. you know, about social sciences? I never thought it was, you know, about, well, there's no morality here, or is this really true? But you're right, it is about subjectivity. And, mm -hmm. You know, I described it as it's the Hillary Clinton of philosophy, <laughs> because it can be anything you want it to be. It's just complete globiation. It's so stupid. And I, I don't know how it is popular now. No, I don't either. But notice something that the folks that are sort of grasping. So I think if you talk to the French postmodernists in like the 1970s, they would probably have told you that they're all very leftist Marxists, which I wrap your head around this. Now, flash forward to now, 2019, <laughs> you have guys like Jordan Peterson embracing this sort of ideals. And it, that should say something about how it doesn't work. So let's start with postmodernism. The first thing to understand about the postmodernists are that they are by no means unintelligent. Uh, quite the contrary. Jacques Derrida, for example, and Michel Foucault, for that matter, two famous French public intellectuals who are both at or near the head of what you might describe as the postmodern intellectual revolution, are extraordinarily intellectually capable. Um, that doesn't mean they're correct by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it certainly means that they're more than able to put together a, an argument that's difficult to disentangle. And so we'll start with the, what I think is the most central power, the most powerful central claim of postmodernism, a claim which I think is actually correct and which also has bedeviled many other fields, including, surprisingly enough, artificial intelligence. 
The claim is something like, there is an infinite number of ways to interpret any even finite set of phenomena. And, and, and that actually happens to be true. It's, it's, it's part of the reason why it's been so difficult for human beings to develop artificial intelligence and for them to develop machines that could operate in real-world environments, because it turns out that the world is so complex that perceiving it appears virtually impossible, technically speaking. We heard a little bit earlier the, the previous talk about embodied cognition, and one of the ways psychologists are trying to address the issue of the impossibility of perception is to note that perception isn't possible without situating the mind in a body that has a certain set of constraints. Um, we also devote a tremendous amount of our neurological landscape to, to sensory processing so that when we look at the world it can manifest itself in the self-evident way that it appears to, but that doesn't mean that it's a simple problem, it's a very complicated problem, and the postmodernists were technically correct. There's, there's, a, there's a near infinite number of ways to, to perceive and interpret a finite number of phenomena. Now, you see, the thing that's interesting about that claim, um, apart from the fact that it happens to be technically true, is that you can use it to mount an assault on any interpretation of anything whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's been used to attack the left yes. in a really weird way. Because, I mean, postmodernism, if, if anyone has read a postmodernist, like, thinker, then you should come away just automatically thinking postmodernism is the dumbest thing I've ever read. Because it is so complex, so wordy, so convoluted, it makes no sense. Yeah. Um, and really, that's the whole point. It's, 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 it doesn't make sense inherently because you're kind of supposed to insert your own thing because we're all, you know, everything's perspective and whatnot. So I, I, I never thought of it, you know, in, in terms of anything but methodology since I was looking at it from a political science perspective. Yeah. But to see it kind of be used to attack the left when I think a lot of people on the left, at least academically, would agree that it's fucking dumb. Yeah, I, like exactly. all of my colleagues hated it. We right. all made fun of it. We thought, oh, God, we have to read another postmodernist paper. It's so dumb. Um, it's just, it's baffling to me that it, it's even being considered, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's good for methodology because what I took away from it, and I shouldn't say good, but what I took away from it anyways is that, you know, when we're trying to develop, you know, research, and mm -hmm. um, we need to be a lot more thorough in the way we try to objectively measure things and you know, find out these objective truths because social sciences isn't like the other sciences, right, you know, right. it's very different. It's right. very hard to measure, you know. Um, so that's what I took away from it, and I still thought that it was stupid because I do think there are objective truths in the social sciences. But to, right. you know, it, it it's good in the sense that it gets us to be a little bit more, um, I don't know, thorough. But it's just it's so overall it's dumb. I don't know how it's being talked about today. Seriously, this, and this was in 2015, but I didn't hear anyone talking about it when I had to study it, and I came away completely disgusted by it. And, you know, felt like I wasted my time, and I had to write papers on this stupid shit that would just, even my papers don't make sense, because the whole thing is stupid. I just spit out some words, got an A, and that proves how stupid it is if I got an A on that. That's so funny. So nobody, uh, you know, when I was uh, in, in my philosophy department, nobody took postmodernism seriously, and we had, in fact, we had a, a graduate survey class, you know, you have your grad surveys, and it was, uh, the entire class was focused on why postmodernism was crap, and I uh, I mean, there's this great book that I just loved and I recommend everybody check it out. It's called Fashionable Nonsense. Um, it's written by, a, I think he's a physicist or he's a physics guy of some sort. His name is Alan Sokol and he's just a genius guy. But 
he did this thing where he created a fake paper. He took all of the postmodernist language, like they all have their non-linears, one of them, I can't think of all of them right now, but they have specific language that they use that doesn't mean any, like in math, non-linear means something. But once you import non-linear as something into a philosophy or social science department, what is the fuck does this mean anymore? You know what I'm saying? So they try to they try to repossess words from math and science into this other universe and and make I don't know these statements that just don't make any sense. You're right, it doesn't make sense. Anyway, so, so that's the big question we're looking at. Those who believe that there's an absolute truth, an absolute reality out there we could know, and it's them versus the social construction, the postmodern thinkers, the followers of Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, and Paul Feyerabend. And they say that all knowledge and, and even science is relative, it's contingent, it's uncertain. Or that, and, and they claim that science is really culturally conditioned and that one kind of science is not necessarily better than another kind. And to assert that your science is better than someone else's, some of them say it's racist or it's chauvinistic or it's sexist. One woman even claimed that Newton's print Kippia, she said it was a rate manual. Another said that E equals MC squared is a sexist equation because it favors the speed of light over, you know, over other speeds. Anyway, that's the kind of stuff that we're dealing with here. Well, in the midst of this battle, there was a physicist of some renown. His name was Alan Sokal, and he was from New York University. And he submitted a paper to a journal called Social Text which is kind of the flagship journal of the social constructionist um, folks, the, the, the postmoderns, those who see science as they do all reality as relative, contingent, and so forth. And he titled the article, he titled the article, Transgressing the Boundaries Toward a Transformative Hermeneutic of Quantum Gravity. Get that, a hermeneutic of quantum gravity. Now, in it, let me read you one quote from what Mr. Sokol wrote in his paper. As Althusser rightly commented, Lacan finally gives Freud thinking the scientific concept that it requires. More recently, McCann, Lacan's topology du sujet has been applied fruitfully to cinema criticism and the psychoanalysis of AIDS. In mathematical terms, Lacan is here pointing out the first homology group of the sphere is trivial, while those other surfaces are profound. And this homology is linked with the connectiveness or disconnectedness of the surface after one or two more cuts. Now, that sounds pretty deep, doesn't it? And pretty heavy. Well, it is, but it was also patent nonsense. Sokol made the whole thing up. What he did was he spent a great deal of time studying the language and jargon of the social constructionist people. And he just put this hodgepodge together of pure no nonsense. Almost all the paper was totally make-believe. I mean, you know, talk about nonsense. What does he say in the paper? But, hey, you guys are right. Quantum gravity is really purely a social construction as opposed to anything that's really out there. <laughs> It doesn't mean anything. It means nothing. It says everything you need to know about postmodernism. And for me, like, I went to school in Portland. We're all hipsters there. We all have spirits. You know, we're all hippies and tree huggers. Nobody, like, I don't know any single person who enjoyed reading anything that has to do with postmodernism. It's, right. it's just 
it's bullshit. The whole thing is bullshit. It's stuff. And you know, one thing that I saw this point that ContraPoints made that was just it was so good. It was something was simple, but I didn't think about it. You know, we're often called what is it like postmodernist Marxist or something by Jordan Peterson. I don't know what the buzzword I is, but these are things that are contradictory. All the time. Like, yeah, it's like really annoying, actually. Yeah, like what does that even mean? Marxism and postmodernism—these are things that don't go together it's, at all. Like you can't use them. Like you can't refer to the same person as both a Marxist and a postmodernist simultaneously. That doesn't right. make sense. It's inherently it wrong. Uh, yeah, no, I just, I, yeah. so it's interesting that you've noticed this too, because I've been seeing that used a lot in the, with the Jordan Peterson crowd. And I'm like, what? I, I, what? Like, I, honestly, nobody thinks that this stuff's for real. And if you guys are using it or weaponizing it, I should say, against the left, you're, you're really, you're desperate or you're stretching or whatever. Yeah, you're not going <laughs> to, you're not going to find people defend it. Exactly. Yeah, you're going to have a bunch of, you know, graduate students pulling their hairs out that they have to read this stupid garbage. You know, exactly. nobody's going to be like, oh, let me come out and die on the hill of postmodernism. Who, like, who, I don't, like, nobody's going to do that. Nobody is. Nobody Even postmodernist thinkers probably admit that it's stupid if you talk to them. Exactly. Exactly. So what else is on your mind this week? What's your new pro, are you working on a new show? Um, what's your next show going to be on? Yeah, so the, the next show is going to be on Ilhan Omar, but um, I'm also doing, you know, it's always, my show is usually there's a theme, yeah. whatever is something that I care about or, you know, a pretty big story throughout the week, and then I have my little shows and whatnot, and I'm doing a segment on um, Tulsi Gabbard and basically what we talked about, how, you know, there needs to be this new consensus of peace on the left, and she's kind of the only candidate that's carved out that space for her. So that's something that I'm excited to talk about. Um, I'm doing something on, um, what's his name? Pete Buttigieg. I always call him Butt Geek. Um, so I kind of initially wrote up. Yeah, right. Uh, I wrote him off as just like a corporate establishment Democrat, but he kind of is impressing me, not to the point where he's a Bernie, but where I rank him kind of like at mid-tier. Yeah. Um, you know, just talking about things that need to be said on mainstream media, like the over to the window and how it's shifted so far to the right mm-hmm. and how Medicare for all isn't radical. It's actually the compromise between for-profit and a national health system. So, I mean, someone who is actually making good points, although I've made um, the joke to my friends that it would be really unfortunate um, that the first gay president has blood in his name because homophobes will never let us put that down. No, but, you know, right. <laughs> it's like, oh, come on, man. I mean, that's that's unfortunate, you know. <laughs> I have an unfortunate last name, too, um, that can be, you know, flipped around on me for homophobic reasons. But, you know, to, to be um, fair, it seems like he is kind of the least bad out of all the corporate slash establishment Democrats. Okay. So I'm talking about him, and you know, just kind of dealing, you know, the general stuff, climate change, net neutrality, and whatnot. So, uh, also today, uh, I don't know if you're going to talk about this, but Barbara Lee endorsed Kamala Harris, which kind of shocked the hell out. Of oh, me. I saw that. I saw that. Yeah, I, I'm not going to talk about that. I wanted to, but I feel like if I did talk about that, it would just be disappointment, and I'm kind of yeah, I hear thinking you. every what everyone else is thinking and I feel like I don't know what I could do to supplement the situation and at the same time I don't want to shit on Barbara Lee too much because she does have a phenomenal record it's just disappointing she's one of those progressives who I feel like she is an establishment progressive I guess if I can make up my own term you know where they on the policy and voting record they're they're great but they just you know they are you know they're in bed with the establishment Mm -hmm. because 
that's how either they feel as if, you know, they get power or they feel, you know, that's just what they like. So, yeah, I mean, her allegiance is with the establishment, and you kind of see that in her not challenging Nancy Pelosi for speaker, you know, and kind of waiting her turn, if you will, and, you know, being the caucus chair first. So, I mean, I I still like Barkley, but it sucks. Um, We're going to – look, I'll say this. I think we're going to be disappointed a lot if 2016 showed us anything in 2020. So I'm just trying to not let it affect me personally so much because in 2016, like every little thing really like affected me. And I noticed that it affected people that way too. Like the yeah. day that Bernie endorsed Hillary, like oh. it was like somebody died. Like <laughs> so it was really, and I remember that day. I remember being so depressed for like the whole week, basically yeah. not like wanting to do like actually like depressed, like yeah. not wanting to get out of bed, you know? So I'm trying to approach this in a way this time anyways, where I'm thinking about this in more pragmatic terms, and I guess that's kind of a dirty word, but pragmatic in that these are people who may feel differently than their actions dictate. So Barbara Lee, you know, it's it's disappointing, but I am kind of allowing for a certain reasonable sum of disappointment before it starts affecting me mentally, but we'll see, because I can be a big baby when I don't get what I want. (laughs) No, you know what, Mike, that's fair. I, um, because you're right, Barbara Lee has has time and time again been on the anti-war side, and I've always really appreciated her sometimes being the lone person with Bernie on a lot of these issues. So I was, but I was, I was disappointed. Mm -hmm. Just because I don't think the two of them have uh, the same agenda. It just seemed odd to me. So in your opinion thus far... No, not at all. Have you... So I know, um, obviously, Tulsi has better, currently, better foreign policy than the other folks that have thrown their hat in the ring. She has some problematic mm-hmm. decisions in the past, but I don't... Um, I think those have been dealt with. I, but other than her, I think the other interesting person is Andrew Yang. I don't know if you followed any of... Mm. Any of the things that he's doing, but he's basically running on an, uh, his entire platform is basically UBI, universal basic income. So, yeah. Uh, he's, you know, he's an interesting guy. I don't, I mean, what do, what are your thoughts on the, uh, the primary field field thus far? Obviously Bernie hasn't announced. So we're talking about everybody that's um, announced th- so far. Right. Um, you know, Bernie's my number one. I still, I go back and forth between Elizabeth Warren and Tulsi Gabbard in terms of who my number two is, because I'll kind of start leaning towards Elizabeth Warren and then she'll stand up and cheer when Donald Trump says that we'll never be a socialist nation. So then I go back to Tulsi. You know, it's just, I go back and forth. So I, they're tied for number two. My number three is, it's probably Andrew Yang. Although I do have some issues with him. I like that he's bringing UBI to the conversation because that's something that we really do need to talk about and fast. But there are things about him that turn me off a lot, like that I vehemently disagree with. Like he is against free college. That's kind of a non-starter to me. Um, He also has. Yeah, well, that's what I saw on Twitter. As far as I know, somebody pointed out that they don't support him because he's against free college. I think he has a different type of plan that is two years or something. I don't want to straw man him, but that's that's okay. basically one thing. Another thing is he is against, um, or at least seemingly, he's against regulations and would apply, you know, a sunset clause to all regulations, which I mm. 100% disagree with. Yeah. So it's between him and Andrew, or not Andrew, um, what's his name? I, I'm going to mess with his name every time. Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg whatever his name is, but Pete. Um, <laughs> they're kind of tied for fourth place. Okay. Um, so after hearing him speak more, because he seems like he, um, he, he kind of does know a lot. I wasn't a fan of him when he was running in the DNC race in 2017, because he tried to 
downplay, you know, the civil war that's going on in the Democratic Party. And yeah. you can't, you know, you can't write a fence here. you got to take a side. Yeah. But I kind of get the sense that he's doing this now for purposes of, you know, bringing people together and maybe not want, wanting to be labeled as progressive because he knows that the establishment will then hate him. So I, he's gone up a little bit in my book. Okay. Um, and then after him, it's, uh, I, it, gets, it gets tough, right? Because there's Kamala Harris. She's probably, like, out of all the establishment candidates, she's probably the least bad. But then there's so many people who are just awful. Um, you know, there's Joe Biden, terrible, terrible yeah, candidate. Okay. Amy Klobuchar, just completely, no. just not even, like, I can't even deal with her. Right. Um, there's Thomas Schultz, which nobody's taking seriously, including his own parents, I'm sure. They probably think he's so. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's great to see some options here, right? Because in 2016, it was just, there was Hillary or Bernie. And thankfully, we had a great option in Bernie, but it's nice to, to see that there's a variety. And I really want a lot of corporate establishment Democrats to run because I think that if progressives consolidate their votes behind Bernie, you'll have a, you know, an easier path to the nomination. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's kind of my thoughts overall. I'm a little bit scattered, but I think that everything will become more clear you know, as, you know, the debate and whatnot. You know, I'm definitely behind Bernie because even though he's not perfect, I think that he he really can affect change in a way because he knows how to organize, you know, from a real grassroots perspective. And he's embedded in these communities. And, you know, he's kind of put in the groundwork. I kind of feel like he's just, not only is he a great candidate, but he's our best chance. Yeah. I, no, I co-signed. I'm waiting for him to, to announce his run. <laughs> Bernie announced. Bernie, Bernie. Yeah, he needs to just do it already. He, it's like, what are you waiting? I've been tempted to try to get a hold of Levy Sanders. He was on my show. I'd be like, mm. I know that this is weird, but like, when is your dad announcing, dude? It's kind of getting irritating. Yeah. It's oh, well, like, I have $27. <laughs> it's ready. It's going to announce. Yeah, it's burning my pocket. <laughs> sort of get why he's waiting because there's really no benefit right now for him until i mean let some of these other guys really start screwing some stuff up first maybe i don't know maybe that's the thought but i think you're right i think um that list is a pretty solid uh breakdown of um of how i would see it too because i don't honestly kamala and the rest of those folks i would never consider i i think you're right i think tulsi and uh mm-hmm. would be my second tier and i go back and forth because there's things about each of them that i'm not really thrilled with um I don't trust Elizabeth. Yeah. I don't trust Elizabeth Warren the way I used to. I mean, I, I like that for a long time she was a, uh, you know, fighting against the big banks, et cetera. But I just, she's done some stuff now where I just like, do I trust her? Do I believe her? I'm not sure that I do. You know, does that make sense? That's such a good point. No, that makes sense. But you know what it is? I don't necessarily agree with Elizabeth Warren. I don't feel that I have a trust issue. I think I kind of just see Elizabeth Warren now for what she is. Oh, and she's someone who eats down instinctually, I think, is a radical, but oh, she doesn't have the courage to oh. actually, you know, do what she needs to, whereas with Tulsi Gabbard, yes. like, I, like, I think she's going there kind of blazing, but at the same time, you know, um, she's new to the progressive movement, as far as I know. You know, the establishment used to love her before she got on board That's with right. Bernie Sanders, so there's a little bit more of a trust deficit with Tulsi, in my view, but there's mm. also... He doesn't have that courage deficit that Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. has. And I think that actually Tulsi has more courage than Bernie Sanders. So, I mean, if anyone can get something done and crack skulls, it'd be Tulsi by sheer force of will, or it'd be Bernie just based on organizing and mass, 
you know, um, movement and whatnot. So the thing with Elizabeth Warren is I just kind of feel like we end up getting another Obama just because she doesn't want to offend the establishment. I mean, look what she did in 2016. She cleared the field for Hillary. She, you know, endorsed Hillary. It's like, okay, so you're not like, you're not very bold. She didn't go to Standing Rock, mind you, which was absurd to me. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're right. And, you know, I have to say the, you know, before she was a Democratic darling, she, she was raised in a very right wing household. She had some very horrible viewpoints early in life that were formed, opinions that were formed from that. And I have to say in the, in I got to give her credit for the way she handled um, her previous stances on uh, gay marriage and homosexuality. I mean, because the things she said were just horrible, but she owned it. She, she didn't try to fudge it or say like the way Joy Reid is like, I don't remember that. I didn't do, you know, it was a hacker. Like she didn't do any of that. Yeah. She owned it and she apologized for it. So on a certain level, I was, um, that's the best you could expect from somebody in that sort of a situation. And I don't think she holds those views now, but, but I have to be honest with you. It's still in the back of my head that she ever felt that way. Like, I don't know. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. No, it totally makes sense. It, you know, it's something that, I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, for someone who grew up and had those views imposed on them, that's, you know, you're, you're going to align to what your parents want. You know, I did too. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, if, if you have the choice between someone who's been fighting for this for decades and someone who hasn't been, then obviously you go with someone who, you know, planted their feet in the ground, you know, years yeah. ago. Yeah. You know, but, um, okay. yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I, okay. It's not something that I think it really is the best that and get in terms of a response to that because like what like what are you going to gain by saying, oh well that, I never did that that wasn't me mm-hmm. like we have the internet now you can't you can't do that and so the more it's not like everyone was homophobic it was socially acceptable like 10 years ago so of course you know there's going to be a lot of people with those views. you just have to own it Mike, and I that's it that's true but so I grew up in a really like my Swedish you know crazy leftist parents I had lesbian babysitters when I was a kid so like for me it's hard for no me kidding. Yeah, true story. So it's hard for me to understand homophobia because I just never grew up in an environment where that was even a thing. I mean, and this was in the seventies, mind you. So <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Yeah, see, that's that's interesting to me. Because yeah, yeah, I had to complete the opposite. Like I grew up in a very conservative well, I mean, I shouldn't say very conservative, like socially conservative, economically liberal, mm-hmm. where my parents would kind of you know, go back and forth between supporting Republicans and supporting Democrats, but overall we're more Democrats, but, you know, still hated every administration, you know, Bush, Clinton. Um, But yeah, very socially conservative. So homophobia was just kind of like embedded in my DNA, you know? Um, So yeah, I can see how you would just adopt those views just without really thinking about it and kind of evolving on those views. But yeah, I I agree. I think she handled it... um, she handled it well. My only concern was that she needed to clarify her personal stance because there was an Aussie article that said that her personal views hadn't evolved. Mm-hmm. Apparently, according to her campaign, they, that was speaking just to abortion. But, you know, if that were true, then you need to come out and say, you know, mm-hmm. so I think that she did a good job as of late. Um, it's just, you know, it, okay. it's not a perfect science. You know, we all, at some point, had shitty views on something. We all are constantly evolving. So you you got to just do the best that you can and prove this that you're fighting out. But yeah, I, um, yeah, I, I think that she is a solid candidate. And the one thing that I will say 
is if she's going to carve out this space for her that is anti-war, then I kind of want her to come out swinging on other issues. Like, I want to know about Israel's own and about Israel-Palestine, because yeah. if you're already invaded by the establishment, what do you have to lose? Just go full you BS, well go you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, own it. Yeah. You know, absolutely. But you know, you're right. I mean, it, 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 we'll see. We'll see, but I think you're right on that. That would be a solid area for her to carve out. She could absolutely own the anti-war space, and that would get her, in my opinion, a lot of support. Oh, yeah, because there would never be a, you know, um, I mean, it would be difficult, right? Because if you came out against EDS, you're going to have a lot of money spent against you. But what we've learned is that the grassroots can make up whatever deficit that money creates, you know? So it'd just be unapologetically for the people. No, Mike, and you know, here's the thing, you're right. And here's the thing, it's going to be a bloody primary regardless. One way or another, mm-hmm. it's probably going to be one of the worst primary seasons we've had in I, forever, probably. So yeah. you're, you're going to get beaten up anyway. You might as well actually take a stand on that and go for it because this, this could be the one thing that separates you from the pack and could be the one thing that propels you through to the end, um, you know, to those last two spots at the end of the primary season. So... We'll see. I yeah, absolutely. You have you have nothing to lose, in my view. You know, if you're going to be anti-war, then be you know as anti-war as actual progressives are. You know. Yep. And maybe she will, because this is still early. Still early, yeah, but I think that's a good point. I'm, um, I'm glad you brought that up. So now let's get all of your, your information out to the listeners if they want to subscribe to your show. It's fantastic, folks. If you're not already subscribing to the Humanist Report, you should, because it's exactly that, Humanist. We're all humans, right? Um, my philosophy exactly. is across the board. So tell everybody where they can find you, subscribe to you, um, and check out your show. So pretty much you can find, you know, the Twitter, the YouTube links, all at humanistreport.com. Anything you need will be right there. Oh, that's just so easy. <laughs> yeah. 